What's happening next in the generative AI war and the generative AI space? How is this evolving and what's really generative AI? I explained already in uh, some previous episodes how generative AI works, but let me get to, the, to this actually by looking at four waves of the internet, starting from the early 90s until to these days. I know it's a little bit long but as a, as a journey, but I'll uh, bring, uh, bring you through it in a, in a couple of minutes. Now, in the first wave of the internet, we are talking about the mid-90s, the internet was growing uh, exponentially, but it was still quite small. So we're talking about millions of pages. At the time, what was hard was actually accessing the internet in the first place. And therefore, the tools that won back in the mid-90s were those tools that actually enabled the access of the internet, therefore reduced the friction to access the internet. And therefore, if the internet was more a tool for lobbyists before, you know, access was enabled to many people through browsing. In reality, the internet was primarily comprised of uh, a large walled gardens like AOL. So you went on the internet, actually it was not even the internet, it was a portal through, you know, players like AOL. There was the time in which when browsers come to the, came to the market, browsers like, you know, Netscape and uh, and uh, uh, really Mosaic, so Mosaic first and Netscape uh, later, actually they uh, created an exponential curve for the adoption of the internet because they made it easy to access finally the internet. You just needed to actually install a browser and that's it. That's how you got into the internet. You didn't need to go through any more those portals and the large uh, gatekeepers like AOL. And there was the time in which we saw the rise as a second wave of search engines. So in order to actually keep up with the growth of, uh, of uh, all the uh, internet, which was growing for, from millions to billions of pages, actually, let's say from millions to hundreds of millions of pages by the early 2000s, actually users needed to be able to search those pages without necessarily inserting a URL in the browser, uh, in the browser bar. And therefore, Things like uh, search started to uh, become a killer commercial application of the web. So if in the first phase, browsing was a killer commercial application, which actually even brought down wall gardens like AOL, in the second phase, searching became a critical stepping stone to, for users to actually make sure that they could enjoy the growing numbers of pages on the web. And uh, a player like Google figured things out through a mechanism of crawling indexing and ranking, which was the prim primary paradigm from a technical standpoint of uh, the search uh, engine market at the time, until actually those days. So in the paradigm of uh, search engines, of course, you could actually crawl a growing amount of web pages also to the billions. So it was quite a scalable infrastructure while able to index them and therefore enable search. On the other side, when the user would actually search for something based on the intent, intent meaning what the users were, uh, were looking for, the user could find a web page or like a list of web pages where he could find the information that the user was looking for. That was the paradigm of search, the second wave of the internet. A third wave came when actually all those search engines and with the rise of social media, it, there was more a mechanism of discovery, meaning that no more users had to search over and over, but they could find information pushed to them through AI algorithms. There was already a time in which AI started to become important. And we're talking from the 2010s going forward. Of course, search still remained a key feature of the internet, but also search engines like Google started to transition into the direction 
of uh, actually enabling users to find information without having to search for it through vertical platforms, for instance, like Google News or Google Discover. The interesting part, though, is right now we're going through a fourth wave of the Internet, which we can call from discovery to generative. The key difference here is that in a generative model, you get really a real time, you know, a real time um, output which is grounded, so it's uh, relevant uh, for, for the user, but is also highly contextual and it is hyper personalized. Meaning that, for instance, if you think of a platform like, uh, you know, um, uh, like uh, Google News, it's interesting to notice that um, on Google News, when the news is served, actually, even with a discovery mechanism, this is served to, you know, potentially millions of users at once based on the intent and what's trending right now. This is a discovery mechanism where, based on the interest of the user, this news is pushed outside and therefore through a discovery mechanism users can enjoy to find information without ever searching for it. So there is less friction there. On the other side, the information on the other side is going to be the same, meaning it's not going to be contextual, it's not going to be conversational, it's going to be the same for all the users. Now, in the era of generative AI, you can produce real-time results which over time might become grounded, highly, highly contextual, so meaning it's going to be served based on the edge, so based on really the user um, context, and they will be therefore highly personalized and also more and more interactive. So that's the changing paradigm from going from discovery to, to, um, to really generative AI. So that's the interesting part. Again, we went in our first era, until like mid 90s until the end of the 90s which we, we can call the browsing era and then we went to era uh, you know by the late 90s until the early 2010 which was the search era and then 2010 moving forward to the discovery era and now 2022 going forward to more what we can call the generative era now the interesting part is in this generative era what matters is uh, of course the ability to have conversational interface which are generalized and probably that's uh, the interesting part is that right now the next frontier for generative AI might be the tooling. So the ability to actually plug tools into those generative models so that even if the model might not be good uh, in actually answering specific things like, you know, math related problems or stuff in which ChatGPT has limitations or ChatGPT like tools will have limitations, still you keep them generalized because you want them to be able to actually handle tools. Like for instance, imagine the case in which ChatGPT is handling, uh, you know, Python programs to actually do a very specific applications. So you don't have to ask for the code and then copy and paste the code. Uh, you can actually um, use ChatGPT as an interface to plug into anything else and therefore have all the workflow taken care of within ChatGPT because ChatGPT is going to be your UX, your, your general interface and general purpose engine to do anything that you want from a business perspective, which is quite interesting. And therefore tooling is going to be really the next frontier of, uh, of uh, generative AI where we might see the rise on the one side, of course, as we're seeing already, ChatGPT may be released as, a, as an API endpoint and therefore enable other businesses to borrow the capabilities of ChatGPT to actually add them into other tools and softwares. But then on the other side, it's going to be also interesting to see that uh, if, you know, developers will be able to plug things into ChatGPT. And that would be quite interesting because it opens up the way to tooling within the application and therefore the development of a business platform on top of it. And uh, this is probably the next frontier. And again, it's uh, something that uh, uh, might be interesting to look at and to monitor 
And it might explain also why a tool like ChatGPT has been so much successful. Because when we looked at the launch of ChatGPT, there is no doubt that other companies, tech companies like Google and Meta, for instance, said the technological ability to launch something like that. But probably the huge mistake has been the fact that uh, they tried to narrow this down. And you know, for for this, uh, for their a little bit justific justification. When you have a distribution like Meta or like Google has, when you launch a new tool, uh, no one is gonna, everyone is gonna pay attention, and therefore every mistake that you make, and uh, every arm that you create through this tool, of course, is gonna create a huge impact on the overall business, and therefore it becomes harder and harder to actually uh, launch new tools and new breakthrough products when you are really the, the dominant player in the market, which is a little bit of what the innovators dilemma tells us uh, as well, meaning, of course, it's not just a matter of where is uh, the product that makes you most of the money, it's also a matter of, you know, when you like distribution. So when you launch, actually, it's very hard to launch in a way that makes it a gradual rollout, but instead it makes it like a launch that anyone is going to pay attention to. And therefore, your launch is going to be way more, way more risky. Indeed, the reason why OpenAI may have been able to actually launch a tool, um, you know, uh, like ChatGPT, a generalized tool, which of course is less safe, it's because this was a startup launch. So even if many people knew, uh, again, ChatGPT, uh, OpenAI, they didn't know uh, really, uh, most of the consumer space didn't have idea of the development of the GPT models, which instead happened through the launch of ChatGPT. So again, when you do a startup launch with the less distribution, there is an advantage paradoxically, which is the fact that you get less exposure initially and therefore you have the time to roll out. So let's remember that before we got to actually charge GPT, there has been a full rollout of GPT-3 in 2020. So there has been like probably five, six years, if you think about it, because the first release of GPT, like a model, a viable model on the market was 2018. And then, uh, of course, there was uh, the API release, official release, and then GPT-3 in 2020, and then ChatGPT in 2022. So there were like uh, five years at least of iteration on the part of OpenAI to being able to get to, to ChatGPT. And therefore, as you can understand, they could roll out the tool in a way that make it, uh, made it better and better until it became ChatGPT thing that otherwise companies like uh, you know Google or Meta or Alphabet or Meta could not do because they have such a wide distribution and name that if they were to launch a product actually this would have uh, attracted attention right on. Indeed, actually uh, Meta did launch uh, uh, ChatGPT-like tool which is called uh, BlenderBot I think probably a few few months before of uh, ChatGPT but uh, this tool was actually withdrawn and uh, not as successful as um, I believe, as uh, as uh, um, as many thought, I, I didn't try it, so I uh, read some reviews about it. But um, the thing is, it seems that the reason why it was not successful is because it was limited, and the reason why it might have limited is because you know companies like Meta or, or or Alphabet or Google, when they launch something with you with with the AI in, actually they want to make it as safe as possible, and that's the paradox. That's the other paradox. Paradox when you launch something, a tool. A technology which by nature needs to be generalized in order to actually being able to perform a lot of tasks, which is what this technology does. When you try to narrow it down to make it safer, actually you make it way more, uh, way less interesting. Because uh, imagine the case of ChatGPT. If uh, they tried to limit it, uh, they would uh, probably narrow it down in uh, in uh, being able to do many other tasks. So, for instance, let's say you limit ChatGPT in terms of uh, you know being uh, uh, too much factual, and then on the other side you lose the ability of I don't know like the tool to be to be able to to code or like speak multiple language. I, I'm not sure about that, but what I'm saying is 
when you limit a tool like that by definition a technology which has been designed to be a general purpose technology with all the risk concern that you have actually you're narrowing down the tool at such extent that you're making it less interesting at consumer level so the tool is still quite interesting at b2b level if you know which vertical to launch it but then it's not going to be interesting at consumer level when you try to narrow it down that's the key problem so again, it's a, it's a quite hard problem, but right now the generative AI space has explained, moved in various directions. It evolved from the discovery, if you want, paradigm where AI was already important, but right now the generative AI, uh, you know, paradigm moves with AI with the, in the center and is moving from a place where this needs to be a generalized tool where they need to figure out how to actually make it safe at scale. At, uh, uh, also by enabling applications at uh, consumer level. This is where we are right now.